Well, good morning, everyone. Happy December. Woo! <laughs> oh, this has been a, a good series. I really enjoyed Aaron's message last week on grief. And I, I just, I think this series, I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to meet real needs within our church family and, and equip us, not just for our own benefit, but equip us to really help other people as well, that God brings them across our path. Um, I love this graphic. This is kind of a cool graphic. Um, let's see, there we go. You notice, this is, Elise designed this, it's, it's really cool for, for our Christmas series. And you see it goes from a, a dark lantern on, on the left to this shining, light-giving lamp on the right. And it, when I saw it, it reminded me of a poem. I had to dig to find it. I'd read it years and years ago, but it, it, it's actually called The Lamp. And I want to read it to you just to start things off this morning. <clears throat> it says, A lamp once hung in an ancient town at the corner of a street where the wind was keen and the way was dark and the rain would often beat. And all night long its light would shine to guide the traveler's feet. The lamp was plain and rough and old as it weathered the storm alone. And it wasn't a thing of beauty that a man would care to own. But no one thought that the lantern was what the lantern was. T'was the light that within it shone. The lamp is the frame of a human heart who seeks, though it's worn and tried, to shine for God and to show the road to souls who have gone aside. You are the lantern, a thing of naught, but Christ is the light inside. Amen. I just think that's so cool. This Christmas season is inextricably tied to the concept of joy. One of these Sundays, I'm sure we're going to sing the song, Joy to the World. I hope we do. It's one of my favorite. The Bible teaches that joy is free, and it's available to every person on the planet. And yet, multitudes of people never tap into it, never experience it, or choose to receive it. And joy can elude even us as Christians when the, the burdens of life press in on us. Even all the joy of Christmas can just get nullified by life and by circumstances. You know, it's been said that joy is different from happiness, in that happiness is largely based on circumstances, while joy transcends circumstances. And I think there's truth in that. But that doesn't mean that our happiness is unimportant. And I don't think that it's unimportant to God. Think about this for a moment. The last book in the Old Testament, we just spent six months studying the Old Testament, last book was written by the prophet Malachi in 430 BC. That means that God was silent for 430 years before the birth of Jesus. And then God waited 30 more years until Jesus began his public ministry. Finally, in his Sermon on the Mount in, chap in Matthew chapter 5, God delivered his first message 
to humanity in over 460 years. And what was it that he wanted to say to us? What was the most pressing thing on God's mind? Well, in a nutshell, it was all about how you and I can be happy. The Bible uses the word blessed, which is from the Greek word makarioi, but it simply means happy, blessed, well-off, fortunate. And when Jesus came, he came to people dwelling in spiritual darkness. That's where Israel was at the time, a nation that had religious corruption, it had political oppression, He came to a people whose, quote, promised land was being occupied by a foreign nation's military because they'd gone astray. And yet, God does not come to them with this list of all the things they've done wrong for the past 400 years and how they needed to get their act together. He could have. Read with me what God's first words to them are in Matthew 5, 3 to 10. Very familiar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. First and foremost, God was concerned for their blessedness, their happiness. But you probably noticed that that happiness is not found in places that we would normally expect, right? In fact, many of them are in the exact opposite places we would expect. Places of poverty, mourning, meekness, hunger, mercy, purity, peacemaking, and persecution. I'm guessing that most of us don't go looking for happiness in many of those places. This morning in our five-part Christmas series, Help for the Holiday Blues, I just want to touch on three more common struggles that we can have this time of year. And here's what they are. Loneliness, depression, and bitterness. Now, covering those three topics, obviously, we can't go very deep in just these few minutes. But, you know, what cheerful topics for the holiday season, right? But they actually do tie into Christmas because they kind of remind me of this guy. The Grinch. You're a foul one. I won't go into that one sing. It's one of my favorites. The Grinch, think about it, he was isolated from everyone in Whoville, living alone in this cave way up in the mountains. He was depressed. He was discontent, he was self-absorbed and spiteful, and he was bitter. He was bitter toward all the people who seemed so happy and so fulfilled. And he made it his mission 
to make everyone else just as miserable as he was. Now, loneliness and depression and bitterness can have all kinds of factors contributing to them. You know, socio-emotional factors, environmental factors, even chemical imbalances, and many more. I am not a medical doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist, psychologist, or therapist. I think they can be extremely helpful, and I recommend them wholeheartedly. But my goal this morning is to offer some biblical help that hopefully will apply to us all, okay? So let's begin by talking about loneliness. We all experience it from time to time. Even introverts like me who love solitude can feel lonely at times. Marriage is not always a solution. Many married couples report feeling extremely lonely. And being surrounded by lots of people in general can actually make loneliness feel even worse. The U.S. Surgeon General recently stated, you might have read this, that loneliness poses a health risk equivalent to that of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow! Chronic loneliness can lead to a weakened immune system, inflammation, higher levels of stress hormone, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and cognitive decline. There are lots of statistics on loneliness. Let me just share a few. Nearly half of Americans report feeling lonely at times. 79% of Generation Z report feelings of loneliness. 71% of millennials report high levels of loneliness. And 34% of adults age 45 plus report feeling lonely. A few more, adults of age 65 plus are particularly vulnerable to chronic loneliness due to factors such as retirement, loss of social connections, and mobility limitations. Women are more likely to feel lonely than men, with 72% of women saying they feel lonely at times compared to 60% of men. And only 38% of men report that they would talk to someone if they felt lonely, versus 56% of women. Interesting. Now, not all loneliness is the same. There's at least three different kinds, okay? There's emotional loneliness, which is the absence of meaningful relationships. There's social loneliness, a perceived deficit in the quality of social connections. And then there's existential loneliness, which is a it's feeling of fundamental separateness from others and the wider world. <sighs> Brothers and sisters, of all the places in the world, I believe the church should be the place with the absolute least incidence of loneliness. Absolute least. Why? Because we are a body. We're a body. We're a family. And we're an army. And that means that we have these built-in advantages. Built-in advantages of the interdependence of body parts, the belonging of family members, and the common purpose of an army. And we have... Emmanuel himself, whose very name means God with us. 
It's always comforted me that Jesus has experienced every trial and temptation that I have. And so he knows firsthand what it feels like to be lonely. You know, back in 2001, I got to uh, my only overseas trip. I went to Israel with a bunch of folks from this church. And one of the places they took us was Caiaphas's house. It's where Jesus spent his last night before his crucifixion. I'd never known anything about this, but they took us to this pit deep inside the house, carved, just hewn out of solid rock, about, I don't know, 10 feet wide by 10 feet long, 10 feet high, very confined, very claustrophobic. The only way in was through a hole in the top. There's nothing in there but stone walls. And they lowered us down. We went down into there, and then they turned out the lights. That's where Jesus supposedly spent his last night on earth, totally and completely alone in the dark. He understands. Speaking to his disciples, he predicted that they would all desert him right before his arrest. John 16, 32, Jesus says, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you, where you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. How did Jesus, in his human nature, how did he deal with the crushing prospect of aloneness? Well, let's just read the rest of the verse. He says, yet I am not alone. Why? For the Father is with me. Jesus took comfort in the presence and support and companionship of God the Father. But even that was taken away from him at the cross. When Jesus took our guilt upon himself, and as a result, even the Father turned his face away. That's when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced a more profound and utter loneliness than you or I ever will. So that we need never experience it. God will never leave us or forsake us. He's sealed his Holy Spirit within us forever. The Father's presence was tangibly, concretely, and experientially real to Jesus. And I believe that for our own health and well-being, it needs to be that real to us. In the 1960s, 1966 to be specific, the Beatles came out with a song about loneliness. And it broke all the charts. It was called Eleanor Rigby, and it's based on a real person that Paul McCartney knew in his youth. The lyrics are sadly very true to life, and they are incredibly depressing. It's hard to imagine why this song did so well. Peace people resonated. The refrain goes like this. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Ah, oh, look at all the lonely people. Ah, oh, look at all the lonely people. 
Now, these lyrics are from the 1960s, long before the existence of social media, which in our day has made loneliness and depression exponentially worse. I know for a fact that there are lonely people right here in this congregation, our church family, and there are certainly multitudes of lonely people in this city, and I know some of them too. And God has designed the church to provide real community, real fellowship, real friendship, and depth of relationship. But it takes work. It takes work. Over the years, my wife and I have had the privilege of inviting scores of uh, single people into our home into our family, into our hearts. And they never needed to knock when they came over. They, they never needed to ask to raid our fridge or borrow the car. Several of them lived with us for months without rent. They were like big brothers and big sisters to our kids. They were and are family. Family. And I know that some of you know what I'm talking about here because you're doing it. You're doing it too. Dear saints, relational intimacy is not a luxury reserved for certain Christians. Knowing and being known is a universal necessity for emotional and spiritual health. And the Bible teaches that, you know, the, the very first thing in this world that was bad was not the introduction of sin. It was being alone. God told Adam in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. So for us, you know, to do good by God's definition is to be involved in alleviating loneliness, alleviating it. God's primary solution to the epidemic of loneliness out there is us. It is us. It takes initiative, not just on the part of the lonely person, but everyone else as well. Timothy Keller, he writes, you need to be willing to go to the people without power, without beauty, without money. That is the Christmas spirit because God is became one of us, willing to go, willing to go to them, and not just at Christmas time. Okay, let's move on. Let's, let's look at depression. You've probably noticed that the days are getting shorter, darker, colder, right? And for some of us, that can affect our mood, our sleep, even our, our appetite. Just receiving reduced sunlight can disrupt you know, your, your normal circadian rhythms. The technical term for that, for that is seasonal affective disorder, or SAD for short. Women are three times more likely to suffer from it. I have a daughter who lives in Detroit, Michigan, okay, where it is overcast from September through May, and the rest of the time too. And she struggles through the long winters. 
For many, depression can become even more of a struggle during the holidays for many of the same reasons we're covering in this series. Let's just look at some of the reasons. Increased stress. I mean, there's more responsibilities and social interactions, less time to relax and recharge. There's physical and mental fatigue. There's pressures of perceived obligations like travel, meal planning, gift giving, and so on. Financial stress. There's high expectations. I don't know about you, but, you know, my holidays never look quite like the way Hallmark portrays them. They just don't. There's travel stress, crowded airports, traffic jams, flight delays, jet lag. There's stressful family gatherings, which we're going to talk about uh, one of these future weeks. It could be the first holiday season after the passing of a loved one, like Aaron talked about last week. There's loneliness, again, can lead to depression. And disappointment over not being able to see family and friends. If you find yourself experiencing any of these things, I want to urge you to reach out to someone. We just spent six months studying the Old Testament law of God. But how do we fulfill the law of God in the New Testament? Well, there's probably several ways to answer that, but I think one of the clearest ways is stated by Paul in Galatians 6.2. He says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so one question for us all this morning is this, whose burdens am I currently bearing? To share a burden is to take some of the weight of it onto yourself. It could be physical support, relational, emotional, financial, or prayer support. Depression is a burden. And far too many people bear it alone and in silence. And so if you choose to come alongside someone who is struggling with whatever, I want you to understand something that is absolutely going to happen, okay? The day is going to come when the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting on his glorious throne and you will be called to stand before him. And he's going to look you in the eye and proclaim something to you before all the billions of saints and angels in heaven. What's he going to say? Matthew 25, 40, I I like how it says it in the, the message version. It explicitly foretells what Jesus is going to say to you. Are you ready? Here it is. I'm telling the solemn truth. Whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me. If Jesus showed up to our church one day, hungry, thirsty, lonely, or depressed, I have no doubt that every single one of us would eagerly rally to his aid immediately. I want you all to look around. Look around. Go ahead. Take a moment. Look at the people around you. Who do you see? Who do you see? 
Random, generic people, few of whom you have much of a relationship with. Casual acquaintances that you don't really have the interest or bandwidth to really know. Or do you see Jesus, members of his body who are so united and so identified with him that he equates them with his very own self? I share this mainly because I need to be reminded of it. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And there are probably hundreds of things that could be prescribed for depression. And most of them are probably genuinely beneficial, but I don't have time. So let me just say that the key word or principle in this verse is the word with, with. You probably heard the Swedish proverb, you know, shared joy is what? Double joy. And shared sorrow is half sorrow. And one example of this is when the angel Gabriel, in the Christmas story, he tells Mary that she is going to be the mother of the Messiah. And she replies, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But we don't see much emotion on her part. Right after that, she travels to her cousin, Elizabeth. And what happens? Mary just erupts with this amazing song of praise to God. Why? Because we don't fully experience the the beauty and the nearness of God unless we're in fellowship with other believers. And fellowship requires withness. I made that word up. Remember the beatitude passage that that I shared at the beginning? Jesus never says, blessed is the one who seeks blessedness or happiness. Or blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after happiness. He doesn't say that. Do you know the most miserable person in the world is the one who is trying hardest to be happy? It's true. Jesus said, if you lose your life, then and only then, Are you going to find it? Let me share one simple story to illustrate this. Have you ever encountered anything like this? Maybe in your high school. My wife's a high school teacher, and I'm sure she has. But one day, some high school teachers brought a whole bunch of balloons to school. One was given to every student who had to inflate it, then write their name on it, and throw it in the hallway. And the teachers then mixed all the balloons up thoroughly. The, balloon, the, the students were given just five minutes to find their own balloon. Well, despite a hectic search, no one, no one found their own balloon. Let's see, let's go back. There we go. Nobody found their own balloon. So then the teachers told the students to take the very first balloon that they found and then hand it to the person whose name was on it, okay? Well, within five minutes, everyone had their own balloon. Brilliant. And the teachers said, these balloons are like happiness. We will never find it if everyone is looking for their own. 
If we care about other people's happiness, guess what? We'll find ours too. I love that. I love that. One other powerful weapon against discouragement, depression, and despair is gratitude. I'm sure you've heard this, but the happiest people I know are not the healthiest or wealthiest or most successful ones. They are the most thankful ones. As David Steindl Rast has said, the root of joy is gratefulness. It is not the joy that makes us grateful. It is gratitude that makes us joyful. So true. Gratitude is what takes us from being, you know, the lamp on the left to being the lamp on the right. And it actually prompts us to seek out and serve those who are less fortunate than we may be. Now, God does not distance himself from us when we're depressed, even if all others do. Rather, he draws all the nearer. Psalm 34, 18 to 20 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, at times I've been depressed, and I've taken comfort in this that God has already solved my absolute greatest problem, which was being destined for hell. Timothy Keller once wrote, God is so committed to your ultimate joy that he was willing to plunge into the ultimate depths of suffering himself for you, for you. We were in a pit that we could not climb out of. And in love, Jesus came into the pit of this world to save us. So finally, I'd just like to touch on the subject of bitterness. And we could do, again, a whole message on this. But recall just how bitter the Grinch was. You know, he was abusive to his poor dog, Max. I know. (laughs) And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoiced, he resented them. He resented all the townspeople because of their happiness. You know, bitterness is like the root of a plant, a weed with a very short root. root. It's, it's just easy to pluck up, but given enough time, the root grows so deep that it's nearly impossible to remove. And much bitterness can be traced to simple unforgiveness. It just poisons our heart. In Ephesians 4.31, bitterness is mentioned along with all these other things like wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And Paul says to put these things away from you. That's something we have to do. But that's not enough. He goes on in verse 32 to say, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And over the years, I have seen bitter roots permanently destroy more relationships than anything else. I'm being serious. And this simple verse shows us where the power to forgive comes from. Did you catch it? God, in Christ, forgave you. That is the power to forgive. In the end, 
The Grinch saw that the townspeople's happiness was not based on their circumstances. They sang on Christmas morning, even though he had taken every good thing away from them. And that's when his puny heart grew three times its size. It was when he learned the true source of joy, the true source, family, community, love. You see, God hasn't just enlarged our hearts. He's given us completely brand new ones, if you're a Christian. Hearts that are now capable of enjoying him, who is the greatest source of joy in the whole universe. Our Christian worldview is perhaps the most practical defense against these three pitfalls of loneliness and depression and bitterness because it instructs us to fix our hope not on the quality and duration of this life, but on the quality and duration of the life that is to come. Our best life was never intended to be now. So to hope in that is to set ourselves up for great disappointment. And there's a daily devotional book by John Bloom that reminded me of that just this week. And here's what he writes. In heaven, we will finally realize the end of our incessantly earthly restlessness, the healing of the homesickness for that place we've not yet seen. And the dreams we've never been able to adequately describe will come true. In this city, we will finally worship the triune God with our entire being in unfiltered glory and in dimensions of spirit and truth that are unimaginable to us now. And we will wonder that we ever used the phrase joy that is unspeakable and filled with glory during our years of dimmed, muted, self-impoverishing, defective worship. There will be no loneliness, depression, or bitterness in the new heaven and new earth forever and ever. And God's ownership of us makes an enormous difference in our outlook on life. I know it has for me. I'd like to close with just an illustration that reminds us of the value of being owned by God. Anybody here know what this is? My last kidney stone? No. <laughs> Although it did feel that big. This is called amber grease. And it is rare because it is only produced by sperm whales, which are an incredibly endangered species, and only 1% of these whales are even capable of producing it. It's sold to the beauty industry for up to $10,000 a pound. High-end perfumers apparently use it because it helps a scent stick to a person's skin. When 2021, a fisherman found a 280-pound chunk of it valued at around $1.5 million. Wow. Maybe they should put, start putting these instead of diamonds on rings, you know? So why do we even bring this up, you may ask? Because that ugly chunk of whale puke is a picture of us. It's a picture of us. You might recall the story of Jonah who got vomited out of a whale or a big fish. But even better, there's a song that we used to sing that goes like this. 
How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. To wretch is to vomit. That's what we were, but God has made us his treasure, something incredibly valuable. And at Christmas, you know, we focus on God's great gift to the world of his son, Jesus, and rightly so. We also focus on the gift of salvation and eternal life that resulted from Jesus' coming. But there's one more gift being given in the gospel story that we seldom consider. And that is the gift that God the Father is giving to his son, Jesus. Jesus says in John 17, 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not, never cast out. You need to understand that if you're a Christian, then you individually, intentionally, and particularly are God the Father's love gift to his son. You're a gift under God's Christmas tree. As Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs has written, when there were transactions between the Father and the Son, eternity past, you were mentioned in particular. God the Father gave you by name to the Son, to his Son. Band, you guys can come on back up. We're going to close this morning by sharing communion. If you need gluten-free, feel free just to raise your hand and someone will bring that right to you. Communion is for those who have trusted in Jesus for their forgiveness of their sins as their Lord and Savior. They believe that he personally died for their personal sins. And on the basis of that alone, they have received forgiveness and eternal life. And that gift, you know, at Christmas time, when someone gives you a gift, you don't pull out your wallet and try to pay them for it, do you? And yet that's what every religion on earth does, apart from Christianity. It's an attempt to earn what is freely given. The gospel does not operate that way. A gift is a gift is a gift. To try to compensate or earn it or deserve it is an insult to God. It's like if I had you over for dinner at my house and we had a great time, it was an extravagant dinner, and as you're leaving, you pull out your wallet and try to pay me. That would be an insult. You cannot earn the grace or favor of God. If you do, it's not a gift anymore. And yet every religion is trying to earn it, trying to earn it, trying to earn it. It says in, in uh, Ephesians, it is by grace, undeserved merit, that you have been saved. And that, not of yourself, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. No one will get to heaven saying, I was good enough, I made the grade, I passed, made the cut, I was smart enough, 
humble enough, wise enough, patient enough, whatever enough. No. It is absolute and only grace, only undeserved favor that anyone makes it to heaven. If, if there was any other way to get there, then Jesus died needlessly. The bread and the wine. The wine represents Christ's blood shed on the cross. The bread represents his body that was pierced. But why do we eat it? It's kind of curious. He could have just had it on a showcase. Everybody look at the bread and the wine and see what it represents. No, he had us ingest it. There's got to be a reason for that. I think it's to symbolize another reality, which is a mystery. Colossians 1.27 says, To them, that is us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless you indeed fail the test. And when we believe on Jesus Christ for salvation, put our trust in him, God permanently takes residence within us. We are now his temple. We're his home. And so communion also symbolizes that. I'd like to share just one last quote on this by author Ian Thomas, and then we'll pray. We'll take the bread and the cup together, okay? He says this, The Lord Jesus died upon the cross, not just to get you out of hell and into heaven. He died upon the cross to get God out of heaven and into you. Amen. Emmanuel means God with us, right? But an even greater truth is God in us. He's that close. And he feels the pain of whatever we're going through. So let's pray to him, okay? Lord Jesus, we are humbled, we're thankful that you, just for the clarity of the message of the good news, it just would not be good news if we had any part in saving ourselves through merit or good works or going to church or baptism or doing the best we can. None of that makes any difference. What matters is transferring our trust from ourselves to your finished work on the cross. Those were your last words on the cross. It is finished. We contribute nothing to it. And we're so thankful, Lord, that we can be the recipients of the greatest gift ever given for all time. Thank you that you are a God who is near to us in our weakness and our loneliness our depression and discouragement, even our bitterness, Lord. You are so patient. You draw near to us, even if all else falls away. Pray you would comfort us through this season so that we could be agents of comfort to just an incredibly broken and hurting world. Lord, we love you, and we, we take the bread and the cup We worship you, Lord, that you've done it all. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.